Welcome to Creative Mind Soul Sessions with Deborah Burnt Maldonado and Dr. Rob Maldonado, founders of Creative Mind. Explore personal growth with us through Jungian psychology, Eastern spirituality, and social neuroscience in a deep but practical way. Let's begin. Hello, welcome to another episode of Soul Sessions. We have a very special guest today, Peter Russell. But before we introduce him, I wanted to remind you, if you haven't done already, click the button here if you're watching us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. Or if you're listening to us on one of the podcast services, don't forget to subscribe so you get every single episode of Soul Sessions with Creative Mind. I'm Deborah Burnt Maldonado. I'm here with Dr. Rob Maldonado. And so... You had a great discussion with Peter Russell. Yeah, he's an incredible thinker and has written uh, some incredible books. We mainly talked about uh, meditation and his book, uh, Letting Go of Nothing. And um, yeah, let's uh, let's read his bio yeah. so people can get a sense of who he is. This is uh, just an official um, you know, background on Peter Russell. He's an author, speaker, and leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He believes the critical challenge today is freeing human thinking from the limiting beliefs and attitudes that lie beyond many of our problems, personal, social, and global. His mission is to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate it in a contemporary and compelling ways. Uh, Russell earned a first-class honors degree in theoretical physics and psychology, as well as a master's degree in computer science at the University of Cambridge, England. He also studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India, and he coined the term global brain with his 1980s bestseller with the same name, in which he predicted the internet and the impact it would have on humanity. He's the author of 10 other books, including Waking Up in Time and From Science to God. His website is peterrussell.com, and he has a new book, Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind, and discover the wonder of your true nature. So don't forget to grab his book. The link's down here in the show notes. And without further ado, I introduce Mr. Peter Russell and Dr. Rob Maldonado in their incredible conversation. All right, Peter Russell, welcome to the program. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So you have a, a book uh, out on meditation, which we're very interested in and very excited about talking about it. Uh, it's called Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. Yes. I love the title, Letting Go of Nothing. <laughs> and we'll get to what is nothing, right? What are we letting go of? Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to start with a quote from the book, uh, it says, letting go is hard to do. The difficulty stems from treating letting go as another another thing to do. But we can't do letting go, however hard we try. To let go, we have to seize the doing of holding on. And that, and that requires a quite different approach love that yeah. yeah 
why is this letting go so difficult and and what is the approach that we need to take it's because i mean it's as i say in the quote it's it's the holding holding on we need to let it relax as i say you can't you know it's very hard to relax a muscle when you want to relax a muscle you know what we generally tend to do is we feel the tension we notice the muscle we feel the tension and by allowing the tension in something happens we can let go and the muscle relaxes of its own accord and i think it's a similar thing when we're holding on to something whether it's a you know a judgment or grievance or an idea of what we want or any anything at all there's usually some some tension there. The holding on creates some tension in the mind or in the body even. And so we've got to do is sort of, we've got to stop the holding on. And so what I suggest in the book is we need to notice, notice the feeling of holding on. And this, I was like, ah, this is how it feels in my mind or my body. And when we notice that, then the letting go can begin to happen more of its own accord. But what we tend to do when we notice there's something we're holding on to we try to let go. People say, oh, I've tried to let go, but I just couldn't do it. And mm -hmm. what I do in the book is take the opposite approach. It's not trying to get rid of something, but actually doing the opposite of allowing it into our awareness. And then it's a natural process. It can begin to relax. So it's all really about, in one way or another, letting the mind relax, letting the holding on relax. Yeah, and it's so counterintuitive because we're we're always taught to to do something, right? To engage in some kind of activity to fix the problem. And here it's taking that other approach of, can we let go of our, yeah. our attachment to holding right. on to that problem or that emotion? Yeah, you're right. Because I mean, our whole society in a way says, you know, if you're not, if you don't succeed, try harder which you know, may be valid in many areas of life, but when it comes to letting go, letting the mind relax, meditation, it's the opposite. The less you try, the easier it becomes, the more successful you become. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you a, a simple question, which really kind of is, a, is a, probably the most difficult one. <laughs> you know, my often our students are amazed that we don't really have a good definition of what the mind is in, in Western psychology, or at least that there's different models and different ways of conceptualizing it. When you talk about the mind, how do you conceive of that? What is the mind? Right. Um, this is, I mean, the way I use the word, well, there's two ways. There's the way we often talk about the mind just being the logical thinking mind, thoughts, that sort of thing, mental mental stuff. That's one aspect of mind, but there's lots of other things. For me, what I talk about is mind, sometimes with a capital M, is the totality of our experience in any given moment. And it's all, that experience is all arising in consciousness. So I use the word mind in that larger sense as the totality of what is arising in our awareness at any particular moment. So, you know, that would include thoughts, feelings, but also our perceptions, our experiences, anything that's going on is in a way in the mind, as opposed to being out there in the physical world. Right. That's, that's my particular way of using it. I don't, other people have their own ways. Yeah. So, that's how I use the word anyway. Yeah, and then a lot of people use it interchangeably with the brain, right? They think that the the brain is somehow the the mind. 
right. No, not at all. I think the brain, the, there's a correlation there, I believe, that what goes on in the brain determines what appears in the mind. So if I'm having you know, a certain emotion, the stuff that's going on in the in the brain, there's activity that's going on, um, which appears in the mind as whatever whatever I'm feeling. But it's not that they're not the same thing. It's just it's just a correlation. Like there's a correlation between you know, what goes on in your your computer and what appears in the screen, but then they're, they're not the same. You know, the picture I see on the screen is not the computer. It's the picture I see. It's right. analogy, but there's a there's big distinction there for me. Yes, yes, I've heard some people describe it as the the difference between the hardware and the software. That the software is the mind, in essence, the 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 ideas and emotions that you're playing with, whereas the uh, the parts of the brain that are lighting up, that's the hardware, the or the wetware. Hardware, yes, yes, yeah, or the wetware. In this sense, not not very hard, but yeah, that's right. Um, and the mind is what actually what what appears. The mind is what we know. What appears in consciousness, that's the thing for me. I like Steve. that. Yeah, the mind is what we know. Yeah, well, what appears in consciousness. The totality of it. The totality in this moment, and so what is appearing is always always changing. Yes, that is uh, verifiable, right? We can uh, we can look at the world and it. It's always in flux and it's always moving and changing. And look inside, look at our, you know, our thoughts, our, our feelings, the images that occur. It's always changing. We're probably never in the same state of mind ever twice in, in our whole life. Yes. Yeah, I, I've often thought of the, this mind as like during the night, everyone received a supercomputer uh, a package left at their door, but no instructions. Like, what do we do with this incredible supercomputer of the mind if we don't know how to use it, right? We just start pushing buttons here and there, and we end up just playing video games with it and <laughs> small little, uh, you know, tricks that we learn. But nobody teaches us how do we use this incredible instrument of right. the mind? Right. Well, they teach us little bits like how do you use it for reading or, you know, doing arithmetic or something. But no, there's no no owner's manual comes with it. But, you know, so we learn and we learn from what other people have learned. I mean, that's the thing we share. Other people learn, oh, if you if you do this, you know, you'll find you'll reach a quieter state of mind. Do this. The mind gets more hectic or whatever. So you know, there's a collective learning which we learn from. But, you know, sadly, it's not really taught in schools or things. So we sort of figure it out on our own and what other people have found. Uh yeah and, and especially in the west we we're certainly taught to focus on the objects of perception instead of really thinking about how is our mind doing these things it's more like focus on what's out there yeah yeah that's that's really i say the west is very much focused on what's going on in the world so that you know we want to work with that we want to know what's going on in the world so that we can actually um, not just be aware of it, but you know, be in control of it. Know what we have to do in order to make our lives work, in order to survive and be happy. So yes, and our whole culture, in a way, focuses on the world out there. There's very little focus on noticing what's happening with our thoughts, etc. Unless you're into some sort of, you know, meditation or spiritual tradition where where that becomes more of the focus. But 
for most of the world, it's like what's going on out there. Absolutely. Yeah. How can we, how can we, you know, make use of it or whatever for our own ends? Yes, and and in reading your book, I was getting this this sense that really what you're getting at is that because we don't understand the the, the instrument of mind that we end up creating our own suffering. Yes, yes, yes. And I think this is something which actually comes up again and again in various spiritual traditions, you know, particularly there in, in Buddhism, is one of the you know basic tenets of Buddhism. Is and by suffering, by the way, it's not just the abject suffering of being in a big emotional or physical pain. A any suffering, I mean, I like to actually go back to the root meaning of the word in Buddhism, which it comes from. Dukkha, which is the opposite of Sukha in their Pali language, which actually, when you translate it, means not at ease. It means not being at ease, not being content. So for me, suffering is much broader than just, you know, strong pain. Suffering is yeah. not being content. And in a way, you know, most of us live our lives. We're not content with not just the big things, but like, oh, it's raining outside. That means I've got to do this or, you know, change my clothes or something. You know, it is discontent. And a lot of that discontent is actually created by our thinking. In our thinking, we think, oh, yes, I, um, this isn't going to help me or this is going to get in my way or whatever it is. And so we create a lot of discontent for ourselves, imagining how the future might be, and it may never turn out like that. So our thinking mind is creating discontent. And I think it was, um, who was it? Mark Twain who said, you know, my life has been full of disasters most of which never happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's true of our own lives. I know it is for me, you know. And so I, th I think the natural state, what I call the natural mind, yeah. the natural state of the mind when we're not worried, when we're not perturbed, when we're not anxious, when there's nothing we need to focus on or attend to, when things are basically going okay, we feel okay inside. And so I think that feeling okay, that contentment mm. is a natural state of mind when we... When we relax and let go of everything, then we just fall back into just a state of ease, contentment, whatever you want to call it. But it's a bit, things are okay. It's an okayness, and then we, you know, we come up with things with I, reasons to become discontent, and those reasons become discontent if you like they overshadow that yeah. contentment. So yes, I think we we create we create a lot of it, and. Again, if you go back to, you know, Buddha's teachings, it says the reason we create that discontent is because we we cling, this clinging, we're, our attachment, you mentioned attachment earlier, it's our attachment to how things should be. We each have this, this is in our minds, this is how things should be in order for me to be okay. And when things aren't the way I think they should be, or don't look like going the way I think they should be, then that clinging creates the discontent. It's like, oh, it's not going to work out the way I want, or it is working out the way I want, but I've got to hold on to it and make sure it stays like this, those sorts of things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, my sense is that we're always waiting for something to happen or like anticipating something that never arrives, right? It's like that that play, Waiting for Gado, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're waiting, but he never shows up, and they just postpone it and postpone it and and... That, that seems to be most most people's lives, right? They're yeah. waiting for the ideal circumstances to arise so that they can be happy. 
but they never come. Right. Yep. And yes, it's like we spend our whole lives sort of worrying about how we're going to be happy, whether we're going to be happy in the future, that we never give ourselves the chance to actually be happy in the present moment, to be content in the moment, because that worrying about the future veils our own natural state of contentment. So that to me is what I sometimes call that the sad joke about human beings. So it's worrying about whether they're going to be happy in the future. We don't give ourselves that chance to actually just be be content in the present moment. Missing, missing the moment, exactly. Are you looking for a satisfying career as a life coach? If you are seeking a deeper path of training and growth, Creative Mind University offers an ICF-accredited life coach training program that goes beyond surface positive thinking and into a powerful process of real transformation. You can start your new career as a certified life coach trained in a unique methodology based on Jungian theory, Eastern spirituality, and social neuroscience. Get the tools to become your true self, change your life, and the lives of others. Visit creativemindlife.com, click on apply, and speak with one of our team members today to discuss your future and possibilities of becoming a certified life coach. That's creativemindlife.com. You also say emotions are more than feelings. Uh, we're very interested in emotions because in, in our model, uh, instead of focusing on thoughts, which are important, of course, we see that emotions are primal because, especially when when we're young, we don't have the all the cognitive skills yet, and so we we t- we're taking in the world as a feeling, as an emotion, as a as like a, this emotional imprint that the mind is holding on to, and, and reading as this is the kind of world I'm going to have to live in. Mm-hmm. And and the mind holds on to that because rightly so, it, it needs to have a sense of what kind of world am I moving into? Yeah, yes. And, and it's interesting, the word feeling. We use the word feeling for emotion, but mm-hmm. it's also we use it for feelings in the body, for sensations in the body. And to me, that's not just a coincidence they're closely connected because whenever we have some emotion, there is something going on in the body. Maybe maybe it's obvious, like if you're angry, it's very obvious what's going on in the body. But other times it may not, not be so clear, but there's something going on in the body because I mean, the way I look at it is a lot of emotions, they're really coming out from an impulse to act in some way or some preparation to act. Or, there's some form of the the body, the child, whatever it is, wants to do something or stop doing something, whatever. And so there's always some correlation in the body. And so I think what you're probably suggesting is the same thing as what I suggest is one the most important thing to do with emotion is actually to notice what's going on in the body, to feel it, feel how the body is. And sometimes we may not notice anything at all, but just to be just to inquire and sit quietly and think, oh, yes, I see. Oh, there's this sense. There's a sort of there's a sort of bubbling in my chest or something or whatever it is. Or I can feel my legs. You know, whatever. There's usually something going on, and that to me is the doorway into an emotion. is is through is through the body. Yeah, the feeling. 
Yeah, I, I started to see the emotions as, as kind of what Jung called the personal unconscious, because if we if we take on, on all these imprints early on uh, and we never examine them, then they just remain in our psyche as this is who you are and this is what you can expect from the world. Yeah. And we see everything through that emotional lens. And so that's our interpretation, essentially, of who we are and what we expect from the world, which becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah. And then when things don't match that, how we like things to be, that's when the trouble starts. Yes, suffering, right? That... Yeah, suffering and then perhaps, you know, doing a lot of things we don't need to do, try to, as they try to solve problems that don't actually exist. Um a lot of sort of behaving towards other people in ways that are probably aren't that constructive always. Yeah. In in your model of the mind, uh, you know, Jung talks about projection, that uh, a lot of what's, what's in the unconscious, right, especially in the shadow, what he calls the shadow, is projected out onto others or onto the world. Mm-hmm. Is there a piece that correlates with that? Um, yes, I mean, I would say, I mean, I, I I sympathize a lot with what you're saying. I think that that is what happens. I mean, it's not so much a correlation. I mean, I, I agree very much with, with you and what you're saying is when we have, it's, you know, the shadows, as I see it, you know, it, it's, it's things in ourselves that we're not fully allowing into consciousness. It may be, you know, from past, you know, traumas, situations, or, uh, ambitions or whatever is that there's something that's going on which we don't allow into our consciousness because it's uncomfortable in some way we we keep it we keep it locked away push it out to the edge because it's not very nice we don't want to let this in it's, it's the bits of ourselves which, which we think aren't quite so nice i mean that's the way i see it but because they're there and because we know them inside it's very easy to see that in other people i mean i know you know i can be I can be super judgmental at times. And what that means is I notice other people who are super judgmental. You know, that's part of my shadow. I don't like to admit I'm super judgmental. Yeah. Super just judgmental. I don't like to admit it. That's part of my shadow. It's not a very nice part of me. But because I know it inside, I know what it's like. It's easy for me to see it in other people. And that's what I see is projection. And, and so I see other people through that lens. And so that that's how I see projection working. Yeah. Yeah. How you see it in your work. Yeah. I, I For us, it becomes very useful projection because if we understand the principle, then when we're triggered by other people or when we see those things in other people, it gives us an opportunity to, to read our mind, essentially, to see what is in my, my deeper psyche. I can observe it in my projection onto that person. Mm. Yeah. So it becomes a useful tool for us. And, and then, so, so let's say we, we accumulate a lot of these emotional imprints from early on. Then we start to generate narratives or stories, like you say in, in the book, right? From, uh, from those emotions, from that lens of, our interpretation of who we are 
yeah. and what we expect from the world. Those narratives then uh, are what we call it ego uh, or the, the, the sense of self starts to develop from that. Yes, it's um, it's a tricky subject, a bit like mine, because we use the word ego in a variety of ways. And I think, so as soon as we start saying ego, we have to sort of pause and say, which particular aspect of the word ego are we talking about here? I mean, one is, which you probably know as a psychologist, you know, having a healthy ego, which is a healthy sense of, you know, who we are, how we relate to other people, that sort of thing. Because people think sometimes, oh, the ego is all bad. But it isn't. There's good parts of it. Absolutely. I can't see one aspect of the ego, well, two aspects which, which I'm sort of interested in, is one is when we talk about someone being, you know, um, a very selfish or self-centered person, we call them egotistical. And, you know, when I look inside myself for that, for that sort of ego I don't find any separate sort of entity. I don't find a thing there called ego. I don't find a part of, you know, there's something there, which is my ego. I don't, that's why I don't, don't even like thinking of it as a noun. It's not a thing so much, but what I notice are a lot of, you know, I could say thoughts and mindsets, which are focused on myself. And in that sense, they're self-centered. So the egocentric, egocentric thinking, which can then control me and, get in the way of other people because um, my self-centered activities maybe ignore what other people need so there's that that sense of ego but it's not it's not really a thing it's like it's a thought system it's a way of to me it's a way of thinking that we get that we get caught in and it comes back to what we were talking about earlier this you know the fundamental need is to to be safe to survive which you know correlates with being content and happy and that that thought system is continually there on the outlook for danger. It's on the outlook for threat, things not going right, or things getting in the way of what is going right. And so it's like it's a mindset which is always always on the lookout for stuff and always trying to. It has our best interest at heart. I mean, at heart, it's basically wanting life to be okay for us. And at times, it's you know, it's really useful if there's you know some real physical threat or something. We need that voice to say, hey, do this fast, quick. This needs to happen. Like, thank you. But right. a lot of the time, it's just sitting there ruminating away, saying, well, what if you met this person tomorrow and they said this? What, what would you do about it? How would you respond? It's like, and so you start getting caught up in all this sort of what I call egoic thinking about, you know, what we need to do, not do. And that that's, you know, basically a waste of thinking, waste of time and energy. So that that's one sense of the word that I use ego. Another is a sense of identity from what we do in the world, our history, um, who we are, how other people see us, all those things, even our, our name, we build up a sense of build up a sense of self. You know, I am Peter Russell, I am British, I'm a writer, I am blah, blah, blah. I could go on for, you know, a hundred different things, which all to do with you know, how I am in the world, how other people see me. And that, again, is something which is constructed. It's another constructed sense of self, which can be useful, but again, can get in the way. Because if you say something which threatens my sense of who I am, I might, you know, if I'm not fully 
awake and aware, be a bit peeved off by that and come back at you and we get into some sort of confrontation. So it's always needing support and reinforcement. And yet, down beneath all of that, I think what I'm interested in, there's a sense of, a deeper sense of self, which is something that's that's always there. It's that sense of, of beingness. It's that, it's that deep sense of meanness that is, it was there yesterday, it was there 10 years ago, it's, it was there as far back as I can go in my life. There's always been that deep sense of me, which is beyond, and I can even change my name, but the sense of meanness would still be exactly the same. And I think when we get caught in these more superficial levels of self, what I call ego, we we miss that awareness of our own our own innate beingness. And that to me is is really important. The more we come back to that, the more in touch we are with our with our true nature. Yeah. Yeah, that that's profound. So th there's so there's this mental function, not so much a, a structure or, or or an entity in us, but more of a like you say, this uh, thought system of ego or egoness that gives us a sense of I, but it, it's it's a it's a kind of false sense because we're we're believing our own our own thought system is identifying or or we're identifying with it. Yeah. Yes. Instead yeah. of understanding that it's it's primarily a survival function or a, a temporary function. Yeah, in in this sense, yes, yeah. And I thought when you say the word structure, it doesn't mean to say you can't see it as a structure. You know, when we look at the thought system, we can certainly go into the thought system and apply the, the concept of structure to it and see how it is constructed in ways, you know, it comes from past past experiences, other things. We we can certainly look at it as a structure. But I think what I'm saying is it has no intrinsic existence. But, it, but it's, it's certainly there and it certainly runs our lives in yeah. unfortunate ways very often. Yes. And, we, you know, as we take uh, people through through this uh, individuation or Jung's process of individuation, often, uh, or not, not often, always resistance comes up. And you mentioned resistance in, in your book, right? Um, why... Why do we? Why does a mind resist, essentially going to its true essence, like this true nature that is beneficial and really for itself? But why is that that pushback so strong? Yeah, I think it's because well, there's two things. I mean, one, it's um. It's a fear. It's a fear of suffering. In a way, talking about suffering, we we fear, we resist something because we fear it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be that pleasant. It's going to reveal something about ourselves. So there's some that there's some sort of fear there. I think that that's part of where the resistance comes from. Um, and again, we're talking about clinging. I think it's that that clinging, that attachment. We become attached to how things are, how we think they should be. And so any deeper looking inside ourselves is going to often bring up resistance because it may, you know, it may break some of our attachments or dissolve some of our attachments again to, to who we think, how, who we think we are, how we think things are. So it's, 
it seems in a way it's probably an inevitable part for most people of this this exploration because we're I'm going to say we're comfortable as we are. We're actually not very comfortable as we are. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the paradox. But we, yeah. you know, but change, change is change can be threatening. Yeah, yeah, and often it's those those difficult uh, episodes in life that push us into uh, really searching and really doing some uh, exploration of that deeper self. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy just to, you know, push it away and continue with our quote comfortable lives. Just get on with what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I also wanted to ask you because I know your background is incredible. You have uh, you you started out as a theoretical physicist. You then you got interested in consciousness and you've done writing and speaking and a, uh, a whole lot of other stuff. How do you see this? Uh, because you know we we live in a um, philosophically in a materialistic world, right? Our our whole science, technology, everything is based on this philosophy of materialism, and, and then you, you're you're one of the few people that I've heard explain non-duality in a in a in a sensible way. Right, that makes sense to to me at least. Um, what uh, what are the implications of moving into this this way of seeing the world uh, through non duality instead of this materialistic paradigm that we our culture and our whole world seems to be based on? Right, this is a huge question. <laughs> when it touches, brings up many things. Um, well, the materialistic paradigm, I see, there's, again, two things here. Um, one, it's the belief that the material world is the world, and that's it. Matter, space, time, energy, everything comes out of that, including consciousness. Consciousness somehow emerges from the world of space, time, matter, energy in ways that we, we don't understand. And the other sense of materialism is what we've been talking about in a way that if I can just get the world to be right, I'll be happy. That's a sort of materialist approach to life is all about managing the matter of the world, which includes you know other people and whatever it is. But so non-duality, I think it's often misunderstood these days or misinterpreted. People think it just means oneness. You know, non-duality is you know seeing beyond male, female. Um, different ethnic groups seeing beyond you know all of that is about seeing oneness which is valid i mean that's a really important thing we need to do but it actually the root meaning of it comes from the sanskrit advaita which goes back about 2500 years and it literally means advaita means not two that's its literal translation and i often think if they meant to say one there's plenty of words in sanskrit which could mean one but they didn't. They chose not to. And one of the earliest teachings on Advaita, which really puts it clearly for me, is there's a teacher teaching his son these basic ideas, and he brings up lots of different examples. And one of the examples he brings up is to say, you see these two pots. These are very different, distinct pots. There is duality here. 
the pots aren't one. They're two different pots. So the duality is real and they're both made of clay. The, the, the essence is the same. The essence is clay. And that's fairly obvious. But then the point he makes is, he says, and the clay is not affected by becoming a pot. The essence of clay isn't changed. And that to me is, is the crux of it. The, the clay isn't changed. And the parallel is in each of these teachings, he actually ends the teaching by saying, tat tvam asi, that famous phrase, which means that art thou. And he's saying that innermost essence, in that case, the essence of the pots, that mm. innermost essence, which never changes, is you. And he brings up many other examples. And so the teaching here is basically pointing to our own innermost essence, which is consciousness, being aware. And that's probably the one thing we cannot doubt, is that I am experiencing. I could even doubt my experiences. I could be sitting in the matrix right now, but I would still be experiencing, even if it's an illusory computer-generated world, I would still be experiencing. It's the one thing we cannot doubt, is that there is being aware. And that being aware itself never changes. There's a there's a diversity of experiences, as I was saying before. Never have the same experience twice. There's that diversity, that duality of experiences, but that underlying essence of just being aware doesn't change. That what I was talking about earlier, that sense of meanness, which mm -hmm. is there all my life, that never changes. And we can start, you know, taking this out to other people that, you know, you are a very different person from me. And you've had your own life, your own experiences, thoughts, and all of that. But deep down, there's that sense of just being aware, which I take to be exactly like how it is for me. When I let go of all my I, things I identify with, all my thoughts, my feelings, when I just come back to that sense of just me, beyond Peter Russell me, just that sense of meanness, I think that's exactly how it is for you, because there's nothing there to really define it except that just knowing that feeling of being, of being aware. So it doesn't, deep down, it's the same in you. It's that same essence in all beings. And so so that's how I approach non-duality. That, that's how I see it. Yeah. Does that mean we, we're sharing the same awareness, the same consciousness? Um, not sharing, but the same essence. I mean, perhaps, you know, analogy that's often used is, you know, water in an ocean. You take, you know, one, you know, one bit of the ocean is very different than the other bits. We're not sharing the same element. We're not sharing the same atoms of water or molecules of water, but we do share the same essence. So we're not sharing the same bits of it, but what we we have that the essence is the same for both of us. So sharing isn't quite the right word there, but we um, you get what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that it's just, we're moving in the same water or the same motion. Right, so, yes, it isn't that there is, we're sharing it between us, but we share a similar experience, that sense. So how it is for me when my mind is quiet and nothing much going on is, I believe, how it is for you. And that so deep down, and I think this is what becomes significant in this, is deep down what I really want is the same as you what you really want you know what we each want is to be content to be at peace to be safe 
that sort of thing and to be loved to love and when we begin to recognize that that deep down we all want the same thing then i think that opens up a whole new way of being with each other a whole new way of interacting when i realize that you want what i want then it's basically it's the golden rule of all the spiritual traditions that let me you know behave in a way let me give you what i would want so treat you just as i would want to be treated because deep down we know we all want the same so, so that's one to be one of the consequences of non-duality which i think is really important which basically says let's be kind to each other let's, let's you know be kind to each other practice caring be loving as opposed to getting into a war that you know on the surface you want something different from me and so you become a little enemy somebody to be you know whatever it is controlled and made to work the way i want you to work as opposed to just that deep deep empathy and compassion at that fundamental level yeah do you foresee this non-dual philosophy ever becoming the predominant philosophy um foresee I, I would like it to i think it would be i think the world would be a very different place if it were i mean you know at the moment you know the the vast majority of actions how we interact with each other basically come out of fear in one way or another they come out of fear or or control wanting things to be the way they are want yeah how would it be if the fear dropped out how would the world be if we could each you know really respond to each other out of care kindness it would be a very different world whether that becomes a universal thing i've no idea it would be nice but it, nevertheless i think it's a an important target to move towards because the closer the more we move towards that the easier our lives will be the better we're able to relate to other people so it isn't about foreseeing it you know becoming the universal thing it's about what can i do to have more of this in my in my life but also to help other people have more of this in their life yeah yeah because uh it, you know if you think about how science progresses and there are these paradigm shifts like just like we moved from the Newtonian model to Einstein's relativity and now the quantum field theories are you know starting to take prominence why not this this non-dual understanding yeah. of the universe as as the prominent uh, philosophy and i think and i think it is it's not taking over yet as the problem but it, but it is growing um and i think significantly and and fast i remember when i first got interested in this back when i was a student 50 years ago more now well 50 years ago there was very little on it you i'd go into my i was at cambridge university who had the second biggest bookstore in england and up on one shelf, there'd be books on sort of alternative spiritual teachings and ideas beyond, you know, the traditional Christianity and, you know, Judaism and traditional uh, religions. Now it's everywhere. And it's because we're all learning from each other. I mean, I write books, people read that. I read other people's books, go to their lessons, talk. We're all learning from each other. And so today, 50 years later, you know, the idea of meditation, of looking at Eastern teachings or other teachings is becoming more and more mainstream. I mean, when I, 
I was teaching meditation in the 70s to corporations. And they made me promise I would never tell anybody what I was doing because they were so scared that the media would get hold of it and they were, you know, they would ridicule them and their share price would drop. Now you go into, you know, many corporations, particularly out here in California, they're, they're so proud of the fact they teach meditation, they have special, you know, segments, segments of the corporation fostering that. They want the media to know they're teaching meditation. Like, it's a good thing. We're with it. We're progressive. So what I'm saying here is this whole area of, of approach, of understanding, whether it's you know, classified as non-duality or not, but this recognition that, you know, th there are things we can do in a, quote, spiritual way that actually help us relate better, be more creative, is becoming mainstream and and fast. Yeah. And I think it would fit to everything we're experiencing. This artificial intelligence, aliens coming, well, all this stuff. It would make more sense in a non-dual universe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think it, whatever situation, I think it makes more sense. The more, the more we can be in touch with our, with our true nature, with how we are, with that deeper sense of that loving, compassionate space, stepping out of the ego's fears, generally the better we're going to be in life i've heard you uh speak on uh about time uh time and space in, uh, in mind-blowing ways uh there was a video i was watching not too long ago and i think it was that uh science and non-duality seminar that you do um and you were talking about time can you tell us a little bit about you know what is this what is it that we're experiencing like uh, as far as this moment i know like you say that a lot of the spiritual traditions talk about being present right in the moment and that 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 experience itself has a mm -hmm. kind of a purification element to it what what is it that's going on there um well on a sort of fairly simple level i think what people mean by being in the moment is where is our attention? Because in one sense, we're always in the moment. But, you know, even in the moment, if I'm worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, I'm in the moment worrying about what's going to happen in the, tomorrow. So when people say I'm not present, what they mean is our attention isn't present. Our attention is on the past or on the future. And that's where most of us spend our time is on the past or the future. And so when we truly come to the present, we're in a way stepping beyond the thought system and just saying, here I am. This is a notice. I'm noticing the birds that are singing, what I'm seeing, or I notice the feelings in my body. So when we, when we let go of our attention on the past and future, when we bring it to the present, we come back to what I was talking about earlier, this sense of just contentment in the present moment. So that, that's on the, on the simplest level. So that's to say there's always... We're always in the present, but it's like bringing our attention to it is a way of relieving ourselves from all that comes from being caught up in the past. And you know, then you go deeper, you know, that like what is time? You know, there's this sense there is time and there isn't time. I mean, to what extent is time just a construct in my mind? I'm not talking about physics, but in my mind, if there's only the present, there is the 
there are my memories of the past. There are my anticipations of the future. They're all in the present moment. So in that sense, there is no time. And yet I can still imagine how things are going to be in the past or future. We get into conundrums there. So and you talk about space as well. It's like, I think Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant from whatever it was, 150, 200 years ago now, he said time and space are actually the way the human mind is constrained to construct its experience of reality. We take in the data coming from the world out there, whatever the world out there is, but you know the, the light that's coming in through the eyes, the sound vibrations coming in through the ears, and we construct this representation of the world, which appears in our mind, and it's like the scaffolding of our experience is time and space. But is there really time and space out there? And again, you know, science, since you know, relativity, Einstein's theory of relativity suggests they're not quite what we think they are. They're malleable. And there's even you know theories in science which sort of say there is really no space or time. So we don't know what time and space are, but we certainly know in terms of our experience what they are. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's incredible. So the this moment then contains everything that is possible for us. And, you know, Jung talks about the collective unconscious. If we're able to transcend the ego, right, or or at least that's the the approach that we're taking, right, a, a way of transcending, of not, not pushing it away, but being able to experience beyond it. Mm -hmm. Are we connecting then to the universal consciousness? Okay, it comes back to this, the same question of the universal consciousness. I don't quite know how to interpret that. I think I turn the other way and consciousness is universal. Mm. Consciousness is universal. It can't be anything else, right? Yes, we're all conscious. And I think other other beings, other, other creatures are conscious. So in that sense, the phenomena of consciousness, of being aware, is universal. But again, I don't think I am tapping into some field which is universal. It's like it is there. It is the potential to become mm. anything. And so my, my consciousness, if you excuse me using those words, but... <laughs> The consciousness that you know I I experience, that that consciousness can become any possible experience of mine. In any moment, I'm experiencing one minute, minute, almost infinitesimal possibility, which is this moment. The next moment will be another infinitesimal possibility. But it has the potential to become any experience, to be pure rage, to be deep love, to be great you know, insights into the nature of the universe to be mundane, boring thinking, whatever it is, it has the potential to become any experience whatsoever. But in its true nature, it doesn't have any particular qualities. The qualities come when it manifests in an individual experience. Yeah. So the, the universe exists as infinite potential for us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I'm just talking about you know, myself as a human being, that's a very, that again is a tiny, tiny slice. All my potential experiences are a tiny slice because that's a human brain, you know, the potential experiences for a bee which sees ultraviolet light are different. 
the potential experiences for you know a snake seeing infrared that has a different set of potential experiences or a dolphin you know which sees through sonar or you know if there's an extraterrestrial and another being somewhere in the universe with very different senses consciousness has the potential to be its experience which may be nothing like mine so it's true to say that consciousness has an infinite potential to become any possible experience there is in the cosmos wow yeah that and that i i i can see then why the ego would resist going there (laughs) (laughs) it is the ultimate unknown essentially yes yes yeah and that's it but i remember once i was in a talk and someone talking about the ego and person saying oh he was so scared of you know didn't want to lose his ego didn't want to go beyond the self didn't want to i forget the words he was using but like he was so scared of actually you know talking about meditation and spirituality and dropping the individual sense of self he was so scared of that and my response is well if it were to happen if you know you were to meditate and you were to find the individual self disappeared would you be aware of that would you be aware that that had happened? And he said, well, yes, of course. Well, then who is aware that has happened? You, know, you are still there. You are still there. You are now aware that there is no, you've lost that sense of individuality, but you are still aware. And it's like, he just immediately relaxed. Like That's pointing to the fact, you know, there's a deeper sense of being beyond the ego mind, the individual identity we cling to. So this process of meditation to kind of bring it back to uh, to the work right that we have to do as human beings. So you you say in the book that being present to the experience of being present is like a another layer of it. Let's say yes, 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 yes. Which and if we can go deeper and deeper, but what we're talking about, you know, just being present is being present. Ah, here I am. Here's here's the birds, here's what's going on in my body, here's my thoughts. That's one level of being present. And then we can step back a bit, and it's just like, oh, and here I am, the being that is aware of all this. So we're being we're being present to the fact we're being present to all of this. And and that that's going a step back, and we can keep going sort of back, you know, deeper. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's that's going back to oh. Here I am, the experiencer, which is aware of all this. And then we can go back, you know, deeper as we've been talking about. And then here's this sense of meanness, which is always there in my life. And here is just beingness, being aware. Yeah. That that I am. Uh, the uh, I amness. Yeah, yeah, not the I am Peter Russell or I am anything, but the I am period. Period. I yeah. am. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, uh, Sat Chit Ananda, this uh, this kind of phrase that encompasses our whole experience of being conscious. Yes. Well, Sat Chit Ananda again. It's a phrase from Indian teachings from Sanskrit, which is, I think, originally it referred to what it what is the nature of I? What is the nature of what we're talking about? The I am, the nature of the I am. And it's our, our true nature. And it's described as sat chitananda. And when you look at the meaning, sat, sat means literally it's sort of what is. 
it comes partly from the verb to be it's what is but it's like okay it's the truth so sat is what what is the truth what is the absolute fundamental truth and that comes back to what we were talking about earlier the absolute fundamental truth is i am aware what i'm aware of is malleable and i can call it an illusion but the truth is i am aware which is chit the word chit means and again in sanskrit it means it means the means not just being conscious but it's the there are things appearing in consciousness so it's chit and then ananda is often translated as bliss but it's if you go i always like to go back to root meanings it's actually a negation it the ah is or rather it's the ah means not all right nanda means contentment so sorry it means deep not not means deep when it's a long age so ananda means deep contentment so what it's saying is the nature of i is that which is always true it's ever present it is the being aware it is being conscious and its nature is deep contentment which is you know goes back to where we started wow. uh, that to me is far more insightful than just translating it as, as bliss which is yeah. i think what happened a few hundred years ago when you know very ardent european students philosophy and things discovered these religions in the east with completely different language completely different approaches and they wanted to study them and somehow the word bliss ananda got translated as bliss in english and has mm -hmm. stuck with us ever since but i prefer deep contentment to me it's much that can be bliss not to say bliss can't occur but it's one of these when we translate it as bliss we put it up there's some amazing experience we're going to happen one day if we meditate enough but putting us deep contentment it's something we know any of us can experience that we may not know how to but it's something that's much more accessible to us and this is the essence of who we are be beyond the human mind beyond exactly. the cognition yeah. and emotion it is it's the essence it's the essence of who we are but because we're so engaged in the world and all our survival mechanisms and what are, what are other people thinking of us what are we going to do what's going to happen to my job we're so engaged of that we never notice it and that's where you know meditation i think comes invaluable and why some sort of meditation is in nearly every tradition as a way of quietening the mind and as the mind settles down it becomes quieter and we're less focused on all the things we have to do or stop all of that we're less focused on controlling the world then we begin to notice that as the mind settles down ah oh, yes this feels easier we begin to taste that contentment and then when the mind you know when it really stops and you just enter that stillness it's like there's that deep deep contentment why why would i ever want anything else that that to me is the power of the deep contentment that's why it's sometimes called perfection which means again going back to the root means everything has been done through doing perfection there is nothing left to do all our doing is about how to be more content and when you're in that deep state of contentment there is nothing more to be done no, why would i want to do anything when i'm here that doesn't mean to say we come out of that and then we're back in the world and there's a lot to do yes but in that state that deep contentment we're relieved of that doing so so are the, we are this what what is or this beingness that is aware 
And this gives us a deep contentment in just being that. Yes, yes. Right. I mean, if, if we can taste it, I mean, if we just, you know, in this moment, we just sort of pause, you know, just take a deep breath, you know, we're talking about letting go, just on that very simple level of just, you know, taking a deep breath, breathing out, I think something we can all do, just like, yeah, there's that little letting go. And when we do that, we just notice, ah, that little sense of ease, you know, which is just that first step. And then imagining that becoming a greater ease, a greater sense of contentment. So we, we can see it's there. We all, we all know it's possible just by, just by doing that. And it's going, ah, yes, here I am. This feels that little bit nicer. So that to me says, that's the encouragement to go deeper and experience that. Yeah. That, and that's the aim of meditation. For me, yes. I mean, there's, there's diff many different sorts of meditation with different goals, but the meditations I'm interested in are the ones that uh, are encouraging a stillness of mind, getting in touch with that inner quietness, and through that, getting in touch with that inner contentment, and then allowing that to come out into our lives more. And also by learning how to do that in meditation, we can begin to do that in life. So when we find ourselves getting caught up in some long thought some story or other about what's going on or shouldn't go or how we want the president of our world country to be or whatever it is creating all that discontent over what we can just pause and just say uh uh okay let me just leave that thought behind and in the middle of the day i just go ah yes here i am here i am and then we can see things in perspective right with that larger perspective exactly free from the perspective of that sort of petty egoic thinking we can be that free from that yeah nice nice so this brings me to something of really dear to my heart you you mentioned synchronicity and um in the book and um i know uh jung was working with wolf wolfgang uh Pauli, um the mathematician on trying to figure out do these are these uh, archetypal patterns that Jung was talking about, the archetypes, are they detectable through mathematics in the world, in the patterns that we see in the world? And one of the ideas that came, that came out of that work was synchronicity, that, that we can see them in these uh, kind of a-causal circumstances or yeah. coincidences. Yeah. I'm not sure they can be express mathematically or there's even a mathematical explanation for them um and it's interesting because you know you use the word a causal and i know that was part of jung's you know part of his definition they were a causal which means without cause in the physical world and you know as soon as you start talking about mathematics and explaining them mm. as soon as you try to explain coincidence we're giving them a cause, you know, whether we explain it in terms of electromagnetic waves or psychic waves or this or that, math mathematics, we're, we're giving them a cause. In effect, we're putting them into the cause-effect world. And what I like about Jung's approach, he was saying, they're beyond cause and effect. They are coincidence, but they're meaningful, for the people concerned, they're a meaningful coincidence. And that, to me, I mean, I think like most people, I've had a number of coincidences in my life, some of which have been so amazing, they just stop you in your tracks. Yeah. And to me, it says, 
there's something else going on in the world. They're all they're all pointing to the fact there's something else happening here. There's something else going on beyond what the material scientific world tells me is happening. There's something else going on. Um, I don't know what it is, and I think maybe we never know, will know what it is if we really take the a-causal thing to heart. There is nothing to know about what's happening, and yet it is happening. There was, there was, there was magic in the world, and so whenever I experience, you know, some deep synchronicity, for me it's like, wow, the world isn't like I think it is. And most of the synchronicities, I find this is important, they actually support me in my own life. They're things that actually you know, they either support something I'm looking for or wanting or just generally they help me. So they have that that quality of, of support in them. They're, yeah. not just, they're not just random. They're not random. So, yeah, the best word I can put on is magic. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't try to explain them. Yeah. I just revel in them. Revel in them and just say, wow, thank you. Yeah. It's like somebody said, uh, it's like the universe is winking at you. Nice. <laughs> yes. That's a nice way of putting it. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. Giving you that. Yeah. There's something going on that, you know, give up, give up trying to understand it logically in, in a, in a sensical way. Yeah. Totally see that. Um, the, you know, you mentioned the, these wisdom traditions of uh, Vedanta and Advaita yeah. Vedanta and um, the Upanishads. You know, I, I've i read a few of the Upanishads and they're just mind-blowing as to uh, they're so ancient and yet people discovered so much about the mind and and, and consciousness just by sitting. I, to me, that's so remarkable and so incredible. No instruments, no... I don't know, maybe they did have instruments of some sort, but to that they figured it out so long ago and understood these deep uh, yeah. uh, questions about existence. I know it's, I was thinking about this the other day, it's, it's just not in our culture. We're so caught up in everything, whatever, whatever you know, so much our science, technology, our culture has given us so many things to attract the attention to seduce us back in those days there wasn't that it was just like you know the food was growing in the fields you harvested it whatever water and you there were basic things to take care of but there weren't this myriad of distractions and so it was much more space in the culture to sit still and observe the mind so it had been quite a acceptable and fairly normal thing to do and some people became specialists of that specialists are just observing the mind, observing what was happening, and coming to these conclusions, almost like the science of the time, but it was an internal science of doing experiments, finding these things, sharing them with other people. And so it's, you know, that's that's why we have to look back to the past. A lot of, although it's happening today a lot more, as I was saying, there's a lot more people, you know, like mm. we are meditating, doing the exploration. But that's why I think, you know, we find it way back thousands of years ago, because that's when there was the, the opportunity to do this deep inner exploration but the opportunity is always there and so what we have to do now is that sometimes resist some of the distractions instead of saying let me check my email or my social media or whatever or chat gpt let mm -hmm. me actually sit down and be quiet for a few moments yeah 
notice my mind and what's going on. Yeah. And the combination of uh, these things, right, that if we could have this internal wisdom and also we, the technology, think of what we could do with that. Yeah, yeah. We, we, essentially, I think we already have everything we need to solve all the world problems. All we're lacking is the will to do it and the uh, kind of the the courage, I think, or something like that yes I th the courage the will and yet it isn't quite as simple as that because there is the huge momentum of the way the world is going and it's like even with the will and the courage can we you know it's like steering a huge ocean ship you know how how do we do that is that little bit by little bit but yeah, the, the momentum, and it's almost a momentum of insanity, but of just the consumerism, the, this, the industry, the financial systems, it's all a big momentum pushing us, like, do more, get more, control more. We're all, all in that, that sense of materialism where we just believe the material world is our, our job to use and for our own ends. So that, that is so strong and it's so attractive. If I just had this, I'd be happy. If I just got this new thing, or if I got a Tesla, my life would be so much better. Like, <laughs> I hope you don't have a Tesla. Maybe you do. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, one last question, because I, I mean, I could go on uh, speaking with you for a long time, but I know uh, your, our time is limited. I know I, I've seen uh, a couple of your videos you're experimenting with uh, AI and some of the things that it can do. What's your sense of the, that question of can these machines be become conscious or are they conscious? My short answer is no. They're definitely not conscious the way we think of being conscious. I mean, they're just... You know, they're just a word prediction machine at the moment. Um, I think consciousness, first of all, I think it's it's to do with what's going on in the world. They have no way of, no, they have no senses. Mm. Maybe in time they will have senses. They have no way to act. They are just that purely abstract, you know, playing with words. So that's not conscious at all. They could imitate consciousness. You could certainly get one saying, I am aware and coming up with all the, you know, right responses when you say, are you conscious? But I think consciousness for me is intimately linked with life. It's it's an organic thing. Mm. And so an AI is just a vast crystalline structure. You know, computers are silicon crystals. It's a crystalline structure, whereas a simple amoeba is a very complex organic structure with lots of different, you know, subparts. And that isn't conscious. You know, the consciousness of an amoeba is like one billionth of our consciousness, whatever it is. So I think, you know, the consciousness of an AI as we know it is virtually non-existent. If we start having AIs built upon organic systems, etc., then I wouldn't know. But I think, you know, as AI is now, it is not conscious. By, by conscious, I mean does it have an inner subjective experience? Right. Like it could be, you know, we could be what are called philosophically 
zombies. A zombie in philosophy is someone like me, who behaves like me, who does all the same things as me, eats and drinks and behaves exactly like me, but has no internal awareness. And, you know, the question in philosophy is how do you tell the difference? And that, that I think is the same thing with artificial intelligence is like, you could get one that looks like me, behaves like me, would it, would it actually have inner awareness? My feeling is no. Right. Yeah. But yeah. certainly fascinating and very dangerous, very interesting. It's going to change the world. Already is. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, I think the the IQ already of uh, the best uh, chat GPT four is like a hundred and fifty. So it's already smarter than most humans. On yes, on I don't take I don't take IQ as it's measured to be a, <laughs> a measure of smartness. I see it as a a measure of how to pass a certain test. Information. Not really being smart. You can have someone with, you know, an average IQ of 100 who's actually can be fairly smart about how they live their lives. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like organic life uh, up till yeah. now anyway, or, or to this point, yeah. And and so, yeah, the, this, uh, it's kind of the similar or along the same veins, but uh, often I hear people talk about, or, or especially some of these uh uh, technicians that are into chat GPT, uh, they're often asked, are we living, living in a simulation? I know it's this matrix kind of yes. question. Interesting question. There's people who firmly believe we do think all the evidence is that we do. My question here becomes, would a simulation actually be aware? I mean, if we are aware, I mean, a simulation, as they look at it, is a sim again. It's looking at material terms. It's a computer simulating. You know, it could. I can see you could have a computer which would be so good at simulating. It would be simulating everything I'm seeing and everything that's known as be a huge whatever it is. That's theoretically possible. Yeah. Would it actually be self-aware? I don't see how a simulation can actually be aware. I and mean, it brings up a whole lot of philosophical problems. So my feeling is. No, but you know, not to say absolutely one hundred percent, but ninety nine point nine 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 percent. No, we are not in a simulation. Yeah, this, this this is the world. Yeah, I I mean, I read a lot of those papers every day. Not every day, but probably once a week. I'm reading some paper on are we in a simulation? I see their arguments, and their arguments are are fascinating, um, but they don't they don't grab me. It's like it's it's all mental construct thinking. Yeah. And even, yeah. if are, even if we are in a simulation, it's a pretty good one, and I still get upset. <laughs> I can still be more at peace. I can still help other people and be more loving. What's it matter whether we're in a simulation or not, really? Right. We would still have to account for awareness. Right? Yeah, like, and and live our lives as we're living our lives, you know, unless you take the red pill and suddenly drop out. But I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'll keep an eye out. See if somebody offers me the red pill. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Peter. I Lovely. really appreciate the, you taking the time to be with us. Been great. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Great. And we hope you come back soon. Yeah, certainly. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to subscribe to Creative Minds Soul Sessions and join us next week as we explore another deep topic 
where you can consciously create your life with Creative Mind Soul Session. See you next time.